Hi, I'm Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. This week, I'm excited to bring you another talk from the Festival of Place. Our festivals are full of fresh thinking and challenging ideas about the way we make places. I hope you'll come and join us at one of our future events. Uh, In the meantime, let's tune in. This morning's session um, is called Gentrification, What's the Alternative? And uh, it was kind of inspired by, first of all, I saw um, Professor Dr. Loretta Lee's uh, TED Talk on the subject matter, and I was really interested um, in some of her ideas. She is the an urban geographer and a world expert on gentrification. She wrote the book. It's called Gentrification, published in 2009, and Planetary uh, Gentrification in 2016. Um, and she produced the Anti-Gentrification Handbook for London Council Estates. And uh, just after Loretta, joining her is Alicia Moriniki Fisher, who's founding director of Migrants Bureau. If you don't know Migrants Bureau, they're a multidisciplinary social design and urbanism practice for black disenfranchised and migrant communities. And Alicia is engaged in work um, focusing on landscape and environmental management, African urbanism, and the decolonization decolonization of space. Um, And they're going to be, this session is going to be chaired by Ishwari Bolero, who is arts and community producer at Migrants Bureau, and we'll be taking your questions after the session uh, and engaging in a bit of of dialogue on stage. Um, So I'm just uh, going to hand the mic over to uh, Dr. Loretta Lee. So uh, please welcome her this morning. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. It's very early in the morning for talking about gentrification, but that's what I've been asked to do. Um, So I'm going to talk about uh, gentrification, uh, what is the alternative? Now, of course, a number of you in this room will already have some preconceived idea about what you think gentrification is. Others may have never even heard this term. So I'm just going to start from some basics. So what is it? Well, gentrification was a term that was coined by a British sociologist, Ruth Glass, in London in 1964. And it was a process that was uh, described as small scale, neighbourhood based. It was posited as something quite unusual, the opposite of suburbanisation, middle and upper class people moving back into the decayed, derelict inner city, a new gentry displacing traditional working class communities. The result, of course, being rehabilitation of property, usually in London anyway, Georgian and Victorian housing, an increase in property values and displacement of the working classes. Yet as gentrification scholars began to think more deeply about what constitutes and indeed might have constituted gentrification before the term was coined, Some have asserted that large-scale urban redevelopments, like, for example, housemanization in Paris here from the 19th century, are also examples of gentrification. Because here, slums are cleared, uh, the area done up, so working-class people pushed out, uh, upper-middle-class people move in, and there's a rehabilitation of the environment. So what then does this mean for the definition of gentrification that Ruth Glass coined? Well, gentrification is no longer seen purely as a gentrifier-led process. Certainly today it is predominantly state-led or at least state kind of uh, enabled. 
Second, it's no longer just about the rehabilitation of historical old properties. It can be new build, it can have modernist architecture. Third, the scale now goes way beyond the neighbourhood. We can talk about the gentrification of a city. And in recent work, I've been talking about planetary gentrification, which is a whole other level. Fourth, the displacement that goes with this kind of core definition of what gentrification is can actually play out quite differently. So the second question is, where does it happen? It was coined in London, but gentrification is actually a planetary process. In the early 2000s, gentrification scholars announced gentrification's gone global as if this was something new. But actually, it was already global before then. So, for example, we can talk about gentrification in Seoul, in South Korea in the 1980s, in their large scale slum clearance and big redevelopment projects to create a modernised middle class in downtown Seoul. If we go back to um, London, where we are at the moment, of course, since that term was coined in 1964, gentrification has taken many different forms, from loft living in Clerkenwell to new build developments along the Thames to gentrification on the Olympic site. Here we have the East Village. So a different type of gentrification, but something that shares the same mechanics behind it. And in fact, over the last decade or so, Many people have argued that London has been experiencing what we might call hypergentrification, a kind of frenzied, excessive gentrification linked to the financialization of property and overseas investment. So gentrification in London today is predominantly state or developer-led. It's unusual for it to be gentrifier-led these days. And it's also taking place on lots of new frontiers. So, for example, council estates being demolished, um, rebuilt as supposedly mixed income developments. And also where I live in Islington, in Archway, we've had private rental gentrification. A New York City uh, company came over to Archway, said Archway could do with a bit of gentrification. They refurbed the old Archway Tower, which used to be a DSS building in the 1980s, very famous in kind of punk songs about kind of depression and kind of 80s and Thatcherism. It's now high-end rental with uh, expensive furniture, a roof garden, pizza oven, uh, gym, etc., etc. all the things you kind of expect that go with this process. Also, as the platform economy has taken off, we've also had the emergence of different kinds of gentrification like Airbnbification, where um, properties are provided for visitors and not local communities. Prices go up. Locals can't either stay put or can't move back in, displacing long-standing senses of community. So you can see quite clearly that gentrification is related to displacement. Gentrification is defined by displacement. It causes it. But there are different kinds of displacement. It can be direct, where people are pushed out of their homes due to gentrification and have to move elsewhere. It can be indirect or exclusionary, some people have called it, where people can't stay or cannot get into a neighbourhood because property prices and rents are too high and have increased. Or it can be phenomenological, even those who might get to stay in place or move back into a neighbourhood post-gentrification will experience a loss of sense of place, a loss of community. So I've been asked to talk about what are the costs of displacement, and there are significant negative costs. 
I've been researching the state-led gentrification of council estates across London for nearly a decade now. So what I want to do is just highlight some of those findings. And these can also be found on a website that I've developed with London Tenants Federation and Just Space called Estate Watch London, and also in the anti-gentrification toolkit we developed called uh, Staying Put, if you're interested in more of the detail. So, of course, for a very long time, council estates in London were seen as the last protection against the complete gentrification of inner London. Okay? They were almost like a kind of wall standing in the way. But they've been under attack since the late 90s, early 2000s. And until very recently, but I think the mood might be changing, there's actually been cross-political party consensus on the redevelopment of council estates and on rebuilding them as new, supposedly mixed-income communities. Now, the displacement associated with this is really not easy to catch. And in a recent project I finished, we tried to do this. So we found that, and this is a conservative estimate from lots of research that we did, about just over 135,000 council tenants and leaseholders have been displaced or are actually in the process of being displaced due to the gentrification of council estates. Now, in media reports, they've kind of estimated on and off about 50,000. So you could see this is significantly higher. So quite a significant quantitative population displacement out due to gentrification. Now, of course, the kind of classic case or the classic case of how not to do regeneration or estate renewal now is the Haygate estate in Elephant and Castle, which has become symbolic of this state-led gentrification. There, there were 3,000 residents. Every single one of them was displaced. Not one got to move back. OK, so when the Haygate estate was first slated for regeneration in the late 1990s, it was a settled, long-standing, successful, thriving community that had been there since the estate was built in the 1970s. That estate now is completely demolished and the new build development that replaced it was branded Elephant Park, and it's supposedly one of the greenest spaces in London, even though they chopped down lots of mature plane trees. And all the units were sold off plan in East Asia. Now, we did a series of, of kind of mapping projects on this, trying to get a sense of actually where do people go? And this is really difficult because you have to track individuals. So I worked on the ground with local tenants organisations. And you can see here from these two maps that different tenures get displaced differently. So uh, council tenants in figure one, yes, they're displaced out, but a fair few get to remain in Southwark, even if not in the same community, even if some don't. But people who bought their property, their flat through right to buy, leaseholders, very few of them uh, got to live anywhere in Southwark. Most of them got moved out, uh, you know, predominantly kind of east and south, and actually many of them out of London altogether. And this is really important. So the tenorial impacts themselves are also quite different. So what are the impacts? There are social impacts, okay? So the destruction of social networks that have been built up over a period of time, extended family support networks for low-income communities. There are economic impacts. So for many leaseholders, they lost the investment in that right to buy property. They had to use up their savings to get another property, often had to, had to get another mortgage if they could. Many people lost their jobs because they were moved out too far to be able to commute to the jobs they were in. 
of course, cultural impacts, community support, churches, uh, community centres, um, all of those kind of support networks were broken. A loss of sense of place, which might sound quite evasive, but actually for a lot of people, including all of us in this room, is actually very important emotionally and psychologically. Health, I talked to numerous GPs who were massively concerned about mental and physical health impacts, depression, suicide, uh, a kind of linkage, complex linkage between displacement and mental and, and physical health. Schooling, children who were settled in school, either having to leave that school and move to a new school, often at a very inconvenient time, or having to travel a very long distance to get back to the school uh, to stay in the same place. Now, I'm going to read one of the interviews I did quite some years ago on the Aylesbury estate, which is next to the Haygate estate. And I've, I've used this interview in other talks, but I want to use it again because it really does get to the kind of nub of this. So this tenant said to me, from the very first day that the demolition was announced, the social bond was affected because people knew that ultimately within the framework of the next few years, they wouldn't be seeing each other on a daily basis again. They wouldn't be part of the same community. So he talked about his friend who could only move out of the area with what the council was offering him for his leasehold flat to somewhere just outside Sidcup. He's in his late 50s, lives with his wife. He's lived here on the Ellsbury all his life. He's got people would see him on a daily basis. His family lives in the area. He's now living there isolated just outside Sidcup, having broken all of his social ties. He's now suffering from severe depression. He talks about this little old lady who comes back to walk her dog on the estate, even though she's moved out because it's familiar and some of her friends are still in the area. She says she hates it where she is now. Again, she's probably in her late 50s. It's not easy to build new social ties, especially the older you are. I think it's had a profound effect on people. I mean, the number of people I've heard who've died during this decanting process, the number of people I've heard who've passed away as a result of having to move, I can't keep track of it. For me, it's genocide. And there were lots of quite uh, problematic stories about this. In some of the more recent interviews I've done, I've also become really interested in the racialization and the structures of racism behind some of this. Um, so, for example, in interviews over the last two or three years with black, Asian and minority ethnic residents uh, being displaced, these showed displacement to be understood in relation to histories of racial discrimination and destruction of ethno-cultural infrastructures and long-standing racialized inequalities. Immigrants also referred to what was effectively a double displacement, first from their country of origin as they migrated to the UK, and now from a council estate that had been their home for quite some time, from which they'd worked very hard to achieve betterment for their families. For many, the impending loss of their home came to symbolise the collapse of their social and economic dreams on moving to the UK, the frustration of their hopes, and it was worse for those who were about to retire, some of whom even contemplated moving back to their country of origin, disillusioned by the way they were being treated. So just quickly, two short interviews here. And um, One interviewee said, and he was talking about his parents, and I think that the loss of this property would symbolise the loss of that dream, the ideals that they have kind of lived their lives by. The fact that if you work hard and keep your head down, you can carve out a little space for yourself to enjoy and to hand on to your kids. And they're just trying to make ends meet. And so I think it's highly likely my parents will sort of retire in a cloud of disappointment and go back to Ghana and hopefully never think about this, the UK ever again, which is tragic. And in fact, 
you know, just trying to make ends meet it is one of the themes that kind of comes over and over again. So in another interview, um, uh, 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 a resident said, it feels that we are not wanted. You know, that's how it feels like. So don't you want us here no more? Do we disturb you? Do they want new people to be here? I don't know. So, you know, some strong feelings here. And of course, for those council tenants that got to move back into their supposedly regenerated estate, the estate that they knew had gone, there was a newly built mixed community in its place, and there were day-to-day -day realities of what people call social apartheid. And this is rarely discussed, a form of kind of social tectonics developed where people just rubbed past each other. So academic research has found that these new mixed income neighbourhoods in London do not provide the greater opportunities and resources for social tenants that is on the kind of box when it's sold to you. Instead, there's an increase in inequality, school segregation, constraint of housing careers within the neighbourhood, uh, entrapment, outflow to peripheral outer London neighbourhoods. The mixing between private and social housing residents appears to be one of distant observation rather than shared investment in social capital. So one man I interviewed who lived in, in near the new build developments along the Thames said, the biggest thing I've heard or I've seen in terms of benefit is the young girls getting jobs working at the hotel in the new development, you know, as maids. So it has given work, but saying that they'll never be able to live here. When they get a bit older, get married and that, Unless the council starts putting up new houses, they'll have to leave. I think that's a pattern. It's nice for the girls to have work, but you could ask if it's fulfilling its promises. You certainly don't have a vibrant working community here anymore where we all knew each other. So the new supposedly socially mixed strata tower in Elephant Castle is an interesting one I've, I've done some work on. Floors two to ten, a housing association, all the floors above are private owner occupier. There's separate lifts for the bottom floors and for the private owner-occupier floors. So how is that a mixed community? People don't even share the same lift. And of course, we've had media talking about rich doors, poor doors. You know, here with the gentrification of Brixton Market, where champagne fromage kind of takes over traditional Afro-Caribbean uh, market produce, etc. So in fact, in these mixed communities, the working classes and the middle classes rarely mix. They have separate life worlds. So if gentrification has negative impacts like this, why are London councils continuing to support and even lead on it? They would say there's no alternative. So that's what I want to talk about now. So are there alternatives, ones that benefit rather than displace and undermine existing local communities? And how do we genuinely level up while renewing urban places and, and trying to ensure actually that existing communities feel the benefit? Of course, given the hegemony of a global capitalist economy, there's no easy alternative to gentrification. It's very much part and parcel of it. But increasingly, we're beginning to recognise that you've got to have alternatives on the table. So one of the issues is that gentrification is sold to us as a false choice urbanism. It's a choice between growth, that is gentrification, or decline or decay. Okay? And this mantra that there is no alternative has become hegemonic. As the American urbanist and community land trust proponent James DePhilippus has said, perhaps a key victory for opponents of gentrification would be to find ways to communicate more effectively that either unlivable disinvestment and decay or reinvestment and displacement is actually a false choice for low-income communities. 
And actually, there are alternatives. Decommodification and commoning that can do urban renewal and not gentrification, renovate urban places while without displacing long-standing low-income groups. In fact, community ownership is the ultimate bulwark against the risk that communities might get displaced as a place improves. If the community itself owns assets, businesses and homes and can keep them at affordable prices, then they can make sure that they're retained for and serve the existing community. So, for example, we could talk about cooperatives of a form of, of de decommodification, where an organisation owns and controls housing development and residents are shareholders. The prices of owner shares are not determined by the wider real estate market that's usually gentrifying, but actually by co-op bylaws. But I'm not going to focus on co-ops today. I'm going to focus on community land trusts. Community land trusts are non-profit organisations that acquire donated or purchased land, which is held in trust for a community, and legal restrictions are placed on the future resale of that land and buildings so as to keep them properly affordable and prevent profit-making. So CLTs undertake collaborative engagement with the community in all decision-making. I'm going to talk briefly about two. I'm going to talk about Parkdale Neighbourhood Land Trust in Toronto. We have uh, the director here from Toronto. Um, and I'm also going to talk about the Hastings Commons on the south coast in Hastings as examples of community regeneration that offer lots of opportunity for learning. So in response to the gentrification of the northern part of the neighbourhood of Parkdale in downtown Toronto in Canada and to stop it spreading south, the Parkdale Neighbourhood Land Trust was established in 2014. It's a community land trust led by a group of residents and organisations trying to protect the social, cultural and economic diversity of Parkdale by redefining how land is used and how it's developed. Some of their core funding they received uh, from the Ontario provincial government uh, from one of their foundations that funds non-profit and charitable projects. But perhaps more interesting, Earlier this year, they acquired an at-risk, low-rent, three-storey residential building containing 36 apartments in an effort to help protect the area's affordable rental stock. With this acquisition, the Land Trust has grown its community ownership in the area to 51 units of affordable rental housing, which doesn't sound very, like very much, but if you build up from the beginnings of things like this, it can make a big difference. Now, this uh, building acquisition was made possible through Van City Community Investment Bank's Preserve and Protect programme, launched in 2020. Through this programme, the bank accepts and holds funds used to guarantee loans, and the bank was able to provide over $8 million acquisition facility to the trust, supported by over $2.6 million in guarantees put forward by investors, including local foundations. And the financing of this stuff is really important. And this is one of the problems. And this is one way forward. By the bank providing a 100% financing facility, it allowed multiple impact investors to come forwards in a streamlined way, to fill in the equity without the trust having to go and raise its own investment fund or numerous foundations having to do direct loans to the organisation. Impact investors, many of you already probably know, seek to generate financial returns while also creating a positive social or environmental impact. They have a commitment to corporate social responsibility or the duty to positively serve society as a whole. 
So the bank provided an efficient and streamlined approach to solve the timing issue, that they had to move fast when you have to buy up a property that's under risk or threat of gentrification and leverage the capabilities of different players. While all levels of government in Canada have mandates to tackle the affordable housing crisis, like in the UK, there are no state programmes that specifically support the acquisition and conversion of existing rental housing into permanently affordable housing. As a result, the Parkdale Neighbourhood Land Trust has turned to impact investors to support their community to preserve and protect affordable housing before it's gentrified. And closer to home, back in the UK, another CLT that's been successful in blocking gentrification in the White Rock inner city area of, of Hastings, down on the south coast, is the Hastings Commons. Hastings has been slowly gentrifying for many years now, mainly through what people have called DFLs or down from Londoners. In other words, gentrifiers priced out of London who find Hastings a bit cheaper. Um, but actually also people now priced out of Brighton who find uh, Hastings cheaper as well. The assembling of the Hastings Commons uh, took over five years from community pur purchases, first of Rock House in 2014, then later Harper's Caves, the Observer Building, Rose Cottage and 12 Claremont. And I'll just briefly kind of show you some of these. So Rock House was an old office building that was bought in 2014 it was funded by Big Issue Invest, Power of Change, Meanwhile Space CIC, Jericho Road Solutions and DCLG. It was redeveloped into living space, workspace and a community hub. Three key social enterprise organisations provided leadership, ownership, management, investment and development roles. And the flats there are rented out to those who have a housing need, an acute housing need. So it's actually ex-homeless or, or ex-drug uh, addicts, a local connection and willingness to contribute to the building and the community. The adjacent old newspaper building, the Observer Building, was bought a couple of years later in 2019. And they now have planning permission for a mixture of cap rent spaces. And this is including 15 cap rent flats for those struggling to find housing. But these are mixed enterprises that facilitate uh, community work, whether it's um, uh, kind of kitchens for uh, refugees or kind of mental health services or whatever. So Hastings Commons is really interesting. It's an ecosystem of connected organisations that approach local regeneration differently. The engagement manager for Heart of Hastings has said, our mission is to bring, into long, is to bring property into long-term community ownership with affordable rents in the control of residents. She said, the Hastings Commons isn't just about the buildings, it's about creating positive ways for people to live and work that enable them to thrive. And of course, we've all started talking now about the caring city. And in many ways, this is a nice example. Our values go beyond just capped rents. The Hastings Commons is about sharing culture. It's organic development of a broad ecosystem of residential, commercial and public amenities through community ownership, all in an environment that was previously suffering from dereliction and abandonment. So she said, our vision is a long term community ownership. We want to protect affordability and diversity forever. So this horrible term, levelling up, levelling up and gentrification, question mark. Okay. 
So as we all know, in 2020, the Conservative government announced a £4.8 billion levelling up fund to support communities with regeneration projects to be delivered by 2024 in England. As Vicky Spratt, the housing correspondent in iNewspaper, has said, done right, a levelling up agenda could help solve this seemingly irrevocable problem, succeeding where other policies have failed in transforming this country's economic and social geography. But done wrong, it will be gentrification by another name, which further entrenches polarities. So the type of regeneration that's being touted is better transport connections, okay, new facilities, restaurants, pubs. And of course, all of these things usually mean a place can get more expensive as these kinds of inputs come in. If it's not shored up by affordable homes as well as public spaces that serve, public, that serve local people, what one person might see as improvement can price out those on low incomes. So levelling up then could quite simply result in gentrification. Levelling up seems to be, and it's still very, very vague, um, a top-down approach. So kind of civil servants in London devising schemes to be imposed on local economies that contrasts with the alternatives to gentrification that I've just discussed, which gives local communities the power and resources to regenerate themselves at a local level from the grassroots up. So levelling up, whether within London or between different parts of the UK, cannot simply be about creating little pockets of prosperity, kind of tarting places up, or, even, or evenly diluting uh, the, the, the poverty within regions. This would simply create even greater intra-regional inequalities, and even in London, uh, kind of internal to London inequalities, which of course is really missing the point around levelling up. So when I started thinking about this, I was trying to think, well, what other examples of levelling up have we had? If you go back to New Labour and their urban task force, which, of course, um, was led by uh, architect Richard Rogers, quite different to uh, the new task force, which is, 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 is led by Andy Haldine, who's uh, an economist. That previous attempt at levelling up, even though it's about social mobility for the poor, it became known as a gentrifier's charter and it triggered gentrification. So my question is, have the lessons, have lessons been learned from that in terms of, of this new levelling up agenda? But I think there are some differences. I think that the previous um, urban task force under Richard Rogers was much more evidence based. I think the new kind of levelling up task force has got a lot of work yet to do in terms of collating evidence of what will be good, what won't be good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's worth this thinking in our mind here. But I think one thing they share is this constant obsession with trickle-down economics, that somehow if you do somewhere up, pump some money in, it'll trickle down to the poor. As we all know, it's not as simple as that. So some people have come back and said, well, levelling up can succeed if affordable housing is the cornerstone of that agenda. But A, it isn't. <laughs> and a B, affordable housing is a misused, even fraudulent term these days, often used as a veneer for gentrification projects. So shared ownership... Is, is supposedly affordable. Um, and in fact, much of the affordable, much of the housing defined by government as affordable isn't affordable for households in London who are even on median salaries and median wages. So finally, um, there may be potential through the levelling up investment programmes. So this is something I want perhaps you guys to have a think about um, in funding community land trusts. 
refurbishment and kind of, you know, redoing community assets and, and putting money into that. And of course, there are three funds, the UK Community Renewal Fund, the Leveling Up Fund and the Community Ownership Fund. I think in answering this, there is no answer right now. It's still very new. Um, things are constantly changing all the time. It's very hard to know yet. But I do think this is something that's worth fighting for. OK, so thank you. That's me. Um, so before I start, I just want to give a major thanks to Festival Place for inviting me here today. Um, many, many blessings to you. Um, and also just all the work that you've done, Christine, and your team as well. Um, so before I introduce myself, I'm going to pose three questions to all of you. I think for myself, um, one of the biggest things is that I have a very curious mind. And the thing about gentrification, housing, it has a lot to do with other people, but it has a lot to do with ourselves. So one of the first questions I want to ask, please raise your hand if it, if it reciprocates to you, is what does it feel? I mean, sorry. Um, are you aware of the power language has to play in your communities and in your societies? And if this is true to you, please raise your hand up. Okay, so majority, great. So please raise your hand up if you've ever felt unsafe in your cities. Okay, cool. So now I'll bring it back to the fact that I'm part of the black community. So please raise your hand if you're aware of how unsafe our cities are for black communities. Okay, fab. So my name is Alicia Moronike Fisher. I am the founding director of Migrants Bureau. And I believe in the power of language, the power of our communities, and also I believe in the power of black communities. Dr. Muna Abdi, who works in education and racial equity, mentioned that instead of praising people for being resilient, change the systems that are making them vulnerable. And on the screen, I've got um, Professor Eskia Mpleli, and this is an excerpt from Down Second Avenue, and it reads, and the black man keeps moving on, and as he has always done for the last three centuries, moving with baggage and all, forever tramping with bent back to give way for the one who says he is the stronger. The black dances and sings less and less, turning his back on the past and facing the misty horizons, moving in a stream that is dammed in shifting catchments. They yell into his ears all the time, move or be fenced in, but move anyhow. They call it a slum clearance instead of a conscious clearance to fulfill a pact with conscious, which says never be at rest as long as a black man's shadow continues to fall on, on your house. So I just want to leave this for everyone to meditate on a bit more. And it says that gentrification, please bear with us while we tear apart your community. So as mentioned before, language is really, really important in how we look at our spaces. It provides us understanding of who actually has the access into our spaces and who is further disenfranchised. For me, gentrification, as much as I respect Ruth Glass for coming up with this terminology, it still doesn't necessarily compute what is actually happening on the ground with our spaces, especially within black communities. To me, what really 
defines a lot of the, the things that are happening is actually the term conscious clearance, because that involves the cultural clearance, the social clearance, the economic clearance, and the environmental clearance of different spaces, different people, and different cultures. At the same time, I've heard the terms informal versus formal settlements be used. But really, one of the things we have to grapple with is understanding that actually, what is popular housing? What are the majority of people using? Where are the majority of people staying? What is their livelihoods? What is their living situations? And what are their living conditions? And also, really being specific about who it is that we're targeting. BAME, minoritized people, racialized people, people of color are all very, if I'm being honest, quite offensive terms. Because people of color, everyone is of color. Racialized people, everyone's of a racial demographic. Minoritized people, everyone in any space can be minoritized at any point. And BAME, Black, Asian, Minority Ethnic, Black is a race, Asian, Asian is, a, is a heritage, and Minority Ethnic, until someone comes up with an understanding of who they mean by Minority Ethnic, I think we need to be more specific. And to me, it's about strategy. If we're going into communities and we're trying to, specific, trying to be specific on who we're housing for, for instance, if we're trying to reach white working class people, if we're trying to reach black, black middle class people, if we're trying to reach, for instance, the black Bristol Somali communities, then that is very specific and it's very different from those that may be in Birmingham who are also part of the black, uh, black Somali community. So it's really important for us to understand how if we're really designing for people, who is it that we're targeting and why? And then moving on, so when we talk about race and we talk about heritage, again, let's be specific. Race examples, so you have black, you have multiracial, you have brown, you have white. Heritage, you have Somali, Swedish, mixed heritage. So the question I really pose to everyone in this room is how do we actually design for people if we're not being specific on who we're designing for? How do we, even as a strategy and an investment, how do we know that, for instance, we're really engaging with the right people? If, for instance, we're trying to uh, create spaces for queer communities, how do we know, or how do we form relationships with those people if we're not even addressing them? So who rebuilt UK cities? So in our history books, it has been told that the first time that a lot of black people came into the UK was through the Windrush generation. I think if we, again, really look at our history, we will also find that a lot of these people who have rebuilt the UK cities during the World War um, have actually been here for quite a long time before the migration. So one of the things that I think is really important to know is, yes, people from the Caribbean have helped build this city. And yes, people from Pakistan, from Poland, from all different types of spaces have actually rebuilt the city when the UK needed it the most. But my question also is really thinking about how do we respect these communities? When the UK was at its lowest point in, in the economy, who was there to rebuild it up? Why did we need that support? And then how are we further supporting these people? After we build or rebuild UK cities, where and how are we treated? I'm based in Bristol. I used to live in London. And one of the most pressing things I've seen, especially in this city, is how it's so segregated. Every city really and truly is segregated and sometimes if I'm being honest, there are spaces in which actually regard need to be regarded and need to be like secure and private. 
But at the same time, when we look at segregation as a tool that is built up of hatred, that is built up of separation from a negative point of view, then we have problems. So last week, I went to a campaign where two owners from a multiracial background were campaigning for their right to exist. Their cafe that was specifically to black, brown, multiracial communities, especially those from queer and trans backgrounds, was closed down. And one of the owners, who was um, Oscar, was actually arrested last week as well and was restricted access to even be on the street of his actual business. This business is very new, it's thriving, it's called Hidden Corner in, in, in Bristol in St. Paul's. And one of the things about this area is that it has a thriving multicultural aspect. There are so many things you can do with this area, there's so many investments you can make. But again, what is investment if you're not working with the people that are already existing? What is investment really and truly if you're working against those people? So, how do we build better? One of the things in Migrant Bureau is we focus on community first. We understand who it is that we're working for and we are targeted. It's a whole strategy to be able to understand why we're working for these people. And predominantly we work for poor and working class black, migrant and disenfranchised communities. At the same time, one of the biggest things is understanding ownership rights. What exactly do these people have to own and how can they have access to the knowledge? Also, again, access and education. And then investment with the community, not against the community. So examples. So in Bristol and St. Werberg's, there's a community self-build called The Yard. This is created by local people coming together to distribute wealth and purchase their own land. What was expected for this land was another corporate-owned housing estate. So instead, they took into their, they took into their own hands. And now it's a beautiful walk, a beautiful area that is so different. In every single house, it's made up by the individuals. But also, let's talk about self-build that has already been existing for black communities as well. So we have Small Heath Scheme in Birmingham, and we also have Nabia Way in Lewisham in London. So as you can tell, there are definitely differences. Small Heath, Small Heath Scheme in Birmingham, which is part of the BCA, which is the Birmingham Communities Association, was formed in 1966, specifically for black, African, and Caribbean communities. As demands increased in the area, they required affordable out-school childcare, Easter and summer play schemes, daycare and respite facilities for their elders, mental health counselling support services, member social club, youth development programmes. And in Way, Lewisham, another self-built community, um, the owner, Tim Oshodi, mentioned that the principle of black people giving something, giving our labour, creating that social housing that's there forever, and them just saying F off, is detrimental. And another part that he said is, do you honestly expect that people who risk their lives are just going to give up what they built? Two of these are actually in a lot of trouble at the moment, and they have been in a lot of trouble. And the, if I'm being honest, the... The crux of it is due to racism, point blank. It's due to racism, which also integrates class. With the previous, you can see that this is, the occupants are mainly white middle class or working class. And although this is a great opportunity, a great foundation for them, I can't help but really think, why is it that these black communities have to fight extra hard? Why is it that these communities, some of them are in disrepair still? 
that they're having issues be able to find investment. So an introduction into Migrants Bureau. We're a small team and we're building a culture where black, migrant and disenfranchised communities have agency to co-create and design. For us, this is the most important thing because education provides access. And as someone who is middle class, who has been able to be in private institutions, be able to see connections, be able to almost benefit from all of these systems. At the same time, what I have seen is actually that working class and poor people aren't able to access this. They're not able to articulate themselves in a way which is actually transferable. They're not able to be able, they're not able to have the vocabulary to even express themselves of what's happening in their areas. And one of those reasons is because they're working 10 times harder because the system doesn't allow them to take a break. So we recognize the influence that culture, geography, and social circumstances can have on people's experiences of urban landscapes. We curate, design, and facilitate sustainable interventions, experiences, and services for translocal and global communities. So to break down the definition, disenfranchised is relegating or systemically denying power, wealth, and access from different cultures and peoples who are continually oppressed. Migrant Nature, bodies, spaces, and animals that can and will migrate across, across different ecologies and conditions, creating both negative and positive impacts to themselves and those new and existing communities. In terms of our work, which can be people-focused, we advocate specifically for those who are specifically oppressed with ties to disenfranchisement. And for me personally, what's really, really important is to be able to understand how these play into the role of our society. Really and truly, what's happening is beyond my belief. What is happening is that so many people from working class and poor communities are struggling in their housing. We are at a deficit. At the same time, when it comes to maintenance, things are not being recovered. Things are not being repaired. And the people that are suffering the most are the ones at the bottom. So one of the things that I encourage you all to do today is have a look on our website. Look at the definitions that we've put forward. Look at the reasons of why we stand together, why we are speaking out about these disenfranchisements. And be open to investing, not just in us, but other black communities. Because gentrification or social clearance is actually just lack of investment. And it is also racism. It is not being able to work with another person or another community and see their value. And the thing is, is I see value across all communities, really and truly. I see value in working class communities from white, black, brown backgrounds. I see, I see so many opportunities as well in middle class backgrounds, but we're not working together. We're not investing in each other. And that to me is a problem. Gentrification, again, is a systemic problem that is about displacing and eradicating different people and different groups. And one of the things that brings even cities like London together is the fact that we are multicultural, is the fact that English is not the only language being told or being spoken in London or in Bristol or in Birmingham or in Manchester. So I think one of the things I want to empower you all today is really think about how we look at our cities, who is in our cities, where they come from and celebrate them. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. 
You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.